In a world full of smart devices, shouldn't your printer be smart too? It is with HP+. These printers know when they're running low, so you always get the ink you need delivered right when you need it. Plus, you save up to 50% on ink, so you can print whatever you want, as much as you want, anytime you want. Huh, that is pretty smart. Get six months free of instant ink when you choose HP+. Conditions apply. Visit hp.com smart for details. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh, that is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. This music is from the soundtrack of The Way, a film starring Martin Sheen, and my guest today, his son, actor, writer, and director, Emilio Estevez. The music plays as father and son hike along the famous pilgrimage route, the Camino de Santiago in northern Spain. Emilio himself has come a long way since his days as a movie star in such films as The Breakfast Club, Repo Man, and The Outsiders. He took a sharp detour away from his Brat Pack career to become one of the most admired and stubbornly anti-commercial independent filmmakers in the business today. Estevez's latest film is The Public. It's a fictional standoff between cops and a group of homeless people occupying the Cincinnati Public Library. We discussed the movie at the Bay Street Theater in Sag Harbor as part of the 2018 Hamptons International Film Festival's Conversations with series. There's so many things to cover, but one thing that comes to mind is uh, your family and you growing up in a family where your dad, of course, is this legendary movie star and he worked on Broadway, his career, and later in life, I saw him do the, uh, 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 the Shakespeare with Pacino with sure. the public when they did uh, Julius Caesar sure. in the 80s. And, uh, and then, be, you know, then he has a career in television later in his career, which is as, uh, as big as you can get on a huge hit show. And I was wondering, growing up in your family, you and your brothers, was, did that seem an inevitability or you weren't sure? You know, so much of it was uh, having access um, to seeing how the sausage is made. And, you know, I grew up, I was five, six years old backstage at, at the public theater and watching productions of, um, you know, Shakespeare in the Park where uh, he was playing Romeo or, or The Naked Hamlet, which was Hamlet is Happening, not really understanding what it was that my father did, but it seemed fascinating enough to say, you know what, what is, uh, I might want to do that. I'm, that's interesting to me. He, he never pushed or No, in fact, uh, or... they, they stressed that, uh, that I should, uh, you know, go on and get a, further my education and, and get a degree in something and, you know, have a, have a solid uh, foundation. And did you? And I did not. No, no, <laughs> I did not. In fact, they still think I'm in medical school. <laughs> 
What's the first thing you do professionally? Well, the first thing I did non-professionally was uh, when I was about 10 years old, my folks bought a, a, a movie camera, like an eight millimeter camera. And, and that was at a point where you know, they came in these cartridges and you put the cartridge, so it was very easy to load and, and very easy to shoot. And so I started making home movies when I was, when I was 10 years old. Um, it wasn't until um, I was in high school that I got involved in the theater department started acting you know, on stage in, in school, wrote my own play, uh, performed it, and my father came to see that play. It was at public school, Santa Monica High School. And he, after, after the show, he said, my God, he says, uh, you got the bug, you got it. And he understood that there was something going on inside of me where I could not not do it. Your mother was an actress as well, right? No, she was uh, a painter. She, she got a, a scholarship to the new school. Uh, as a fine artist, and she um, she met my father. Uh, in fact, uh, he was living on a on a couch uh, at a, a mutual friend of theirs' house, and, and Jim Tiroff. And Jim wanted uh, my dad off of his couch, so he says, "Hey, I got a great gal for you." <laughs> and uh, so they went on a date. My mother hated him, uh, and yet three weeks later, they were uh, they were living together uh, in New York, and um, and they've been together ever since. It's 57 years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So the first job for you, professional job, is it a TV show or a film? It's a film called Tex. So you do Tex yes. with, uh, with Matt Dillon. Matt Dillon. And how did that come about? Uh, it, basically the audition uh, process. Um, you know, you I, I'd, been, I'd, I'd been, yeah, I would, I'd been auditioning since I was about 16. Uh, my friends in high school would drive me. I didn't have a car, so they'd drive me to, uh, to an audition. Uh, my, first, uh, my first professional audition was for Alan Parker. Uh, where he was directing a, um, a film called The Fame. Right. So I auditioned. I didn't really know what the hell I was doing, but I, I started auditioning. I didn't get my first job until I was 18. It was the day I graduated high school. It was an after-school special. And, um, and it was, you know, you back, back in the day, you had to have a piece of film. Uh, it wasn't, you know, I had a couple of monologues. Uh, I had a, a William Inge, Dark at the Top of the Stairs, and I had a Shakespearean monologue. And you'd go in and you'd audition for, for uh, casting directors, but they're like, oh, okay. Um, but it wasn't until you had a piece of film that you could show and, and, and you know, use that to hopefully get, help you get jobs. So once I had that 30-minute after-school special, it sort of launched me into getting better auditions for better directors. It really was this suffocating catch-22, which is you'd be in a room and you'd audition, and someone would say, man, I think you're fantastic. And the moment someone else hires you, you call me. Uh, <laughs> right. You know, bring me right. your film, bring me the right. clip of you in a right. movie that someone else put you in. They all needed you, you know, to, to, for someone else to validate you. You know, I auditioned uh, initially for um, 16 Candles, which was John Hughes's first film. And so I walked into the audition, it was for, for a role that was eventually played by an actor called Michael Shuffling. And, and I prepared for it and I came in and I killed it. I mean, I killed the audition. I thought, man, I've got this hands down. I walked out of the room, I was like, yes, this is mine. Michael Chinich, who if you remember, was mm -hmm. a casting director at Universal, walks me out and he says, hey, listen, man, um, you're not gonna get this role. I said, well, what do you mean? I, I killed it. He says, no, no, no. He says, it's not gonna happen. But here's what is going to happen. He says, you're going to get in your car, and you're going to drive over to Santa Monica, Venice area. There's Vicky Thomas is casting this film called Repo Man. Uh, you're going to go audition for that, and now you've got a better shot at getting that film. I was like, ah. So I was so angry about not getting 16 Candles, I drove over to the, this audition with all of that anger, which I think fueled me getting the part. 
in Ripple Moon. This is this is before Outsiders. This is before Outsiders. Correct. Before, this yeah. is before Outsiders. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I remember when you're in those early days of casting. It is so bizarre. Like I'll never forget. I did a TV show uh, for CBS, and uh, the woman who was the head of talent, or I forget her title, was Christopher Guest's mother, Jean Guest, mm, sure. who was this very elegant, lovely woman who had this big office in uh, TV City in LA. And there was an executive who worked with her. I'll never forget. You're first starting out, and you don't know what's what. I mean, I didn't know what's what. You come from a family where uh, you probably had that, that advantage over me. And I go there, and, uh, and, and the pilot we did bombed. And we're in a room, and they go, don't worry about it. We're going to sign you to a holding deal. We're going to sign you to a network holding deal where we pay you money, not a lot of money, just to not work for anybody else. And you're going to work for us. And this guy leans in and goes, we think you're great, man. We're going to make you the next Bill Bixby. Oh, oh God. I remember sitting there going, you know, well, I, mean, I guess they think that's a good thing. I right. should probably, I right. should probably think that's a good sure. thing. Sure. Well, you know, and, and, and oftentimes as actors, we get criticized. Well, why did he make that choice? Or why did he choose? It, it, sometimes it doesn't come down to a choice. Sometimes the movie picks you. You know, when I, the day I auditioned for Breakfast Club, I had auditioned for a Chips episode. I had auditioned for a Taco Bell commercial, and it was just it's like they they just happened to say yes. Right, and and yeah. sometimes it is just a matter of that, and uh, someone uh, you know casting you in their film, and it's and it's luck, and it's timing, and and oftentimes we're criticized for why'd you make that choice? Well, the choice wasn't up to us. Who directed yeah. Repo Man? Alex Cox. He went on and he did a great picture after that called Sid and Nancy. Yeah, Sid and Nancy. Describe uh, what the process was like with Coppola. Oh well, uh, you know Francis um, likes a very long, protracted. Uh, casting um, sessions, and so he and he likes to sort of create a, a gladiator mentality. So he had actors from all over town. Uh, in fact, I think some of these audition tapes have made uh, the rounds online. But you've got Dennis Quaid and Mickey Rourke and and Tom Cruise and everyone in town at the time who could have been right for that film were all in this pit. And and Francis would say, "Now you're going to play this part, and you're going to." And so you may have just audition for a specific role, and now you're watching Patrick Swayze do it, or, or you're watching Rob Lowe do, or Tom Cruise do it, and it's like, oh God, he's so much better than me, I'm never going to get this. Uh, and, it was, and it created a, a real sense of competition, and, and it was exhausting. Uh, and then he, he took, uh, I think, four or five finalists from the, uh, from the LA auditions, we all flew to New York, and we did the same process at the Brill Building. And it was, it was exhausting, um, but ultimately, uh, I think that Francis knew who his guys were going to be, and, um, and and those were the, the the ones that did fly to New York were the ones that, that ended up in the film. And what was the experience like shooting the film? He um, he early days he was he was involved in um, uh, chroma I think it's called chroma key where you can uh, basically affect the background of a location. You'd stand we'd stand on an empty set and we would shoot basically the entire film. So it was two weeks rehearsal. You remember back in the day, it wasn't a question of whether or not you were going to give two weeks. You gave two weeks of rehearsal. It was, you showed up two weeks early for, for so that was for the two weeks uh, prior to shooting, we had completed top to bottom shooting the entire film. But uh, now you're lucky if your actors show up the, the day before you start shooting. Right. Uh, you don't seem like you're all in on the movie stardom thing. Well... This, this seems like a piece of you that's you know, right. uncomfortable. And is that accurate? Because like, it, it seems is. like you're, yeah. yeah. So yeah. describe that. Well, I, like. you know, it's, I, I never got into this business to be famous. I got into it to be a, a working actor, like my father. He, he sort of set the tone. He, in fact, when I, when I was starting, he says, you know what, uh, no one's going to remember your name. No one's going to know your name. Just do the work. Do the work. 
And, and he just kept stressing that. And he says, and if you're lucky enough, you'll keep working until you're old. Um, but, uh, uh, and so I've been very lucky, and, I, and I've made some good choices, and I've made some bad ones. But, but um, I, I've never been comfortable with, with the autographs and the selfies and now, um, but all the stuff that comes with it, because it, it felt like it was so far away from the reason we became actors to, to begin with. That whole thing of like gaming your career, you know. My agent said to me, uh, we're going to send a script over to you, and it's for a movie that was with a big director. It was, it was kind of an action film, kind of a, a very you know, crazy action drama, and it was the most money I would ever be paid in a movie. And he sends the script over, and the messenger comes, and I open the door, and I sit down. I just devour it. I just sit right down and read it. And I call up my agent, and I go, you know, God, I, I want to love it, man. I want to love it. I really wanted I mean, I never wanted to love a movie more in my life than this movie. I said, but I can't do it. I don't, I don't get it. I don't get what right. they want. I don't know what, how I could do that. I mean, maybe they need a different kind of guy. And he goes, do me a favor. He says, why don't you come on over to my office? And he goes, and I want you to read the script again in my office. He goes, and we have a light. We have a special light we have in the office. <laughs> and the light we have projects onto the page the amount of money you're going to get paid. <laughs> to be in the movie. <laughs> Would you do that for me? Would you come over to the office and read the script again with so our special funny. light we have here at CAA? Right. <laughs> and I laughed and everything. But I mean, you, you realize, like, you know, getting it right, getting it wrong, I always, uh, I kind of gave up. I was like, I, I don't know what the right answer is. Sure. You know? sure. Uh, now, as you're going along and making films, you work with Hughes. Uh, what was he like to work with? He was very childlike. I loved him. Yeah, he was very, he was very curious about everything. Yeah. And that's what made him, I think, a ter such a terrific filmmaker, is that he asked questions about you all the time. He says, well, how are you feeling? What's going on in your life right now? And, and, and you know, look at this old draft of the script, and what do you think of, you know, I cut this out, and maybe you can figure out how to make this work. He was very collaborative, and, and it takes uh, a lot of confidence, I think, and especially as, a, as, as a, I think it was his second time that he had directed at that point with me. And, but to have the confidence to trust your actors the way that he did uh, during that experience was, um, was a real lesson for me. He's the only person I knew who rolled the camera and he'd write notes on like a cue card with a magic marker while we were rolling. Right. So you're sitting there and, and uh, Elizabeth McGovern would say, ask me, uh, you know, she, I, I was supposed to be the sophisticated rich kid and I've been all over the world. She's like, but God, you must have been everywhere. You've been so many places. Uh, well, you know, tell me about some of the places you've been. And he would write a city and then he'd write a, like a really crude association. He'd write Berlin, lesbians, and he'd hold it up. <laughs> and I go, well, you know, Berlin has got, you know, it's just teaming with lesbians. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm reading this off the card. And he's like holding it, going, da, 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 you know. Right. Uh, 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 and uh, he was crazy. He was really, really so and much fun to shoot. he would play music, too. He would play music and drive the sound people nuts. But during, during the filming of a scene, he would just start some music. Like Cameron. Yeah, yeah. Cameron Crow plays a lot of music. Now, at what point that you're doing this, because you work with some, you know, fantastic directors, does the directing thing begin to dawn on you? Well, you know, I'd, I'd written a, a, I did an adaptation of an S.E. Hinton novel, and it was perhaps the least successful of the four that were, that were uh, uh, turned into films. Uh, it was, a, it was a, a movie called That Was In, This Is Now, and, um, and for a lot of different reasons, the picture just didn't work. And so I was very frustrated coming out of that experience, and I was 23 years old. And I said, that's not going to happen next time. I'm going to direct. 
and I surrounded myself with, with uh, I wrote the script, it was terrible, and, and I surrounded myself with an amazing group of, of technicians. Uh, Robert Wise was my executive producer and, and ended up being a mentor to me. Michael Kahn, who's Spielberg's editor, cut it. Dennis Gastner was our uh, production designer. Um, uh, Danny Elfman wrote the score. I mean, I was surrounded and supported by this extraordinary group of people and I had a terrible script, and I shot it anyway. And I was convinced that no one was going to tell me what to do. And I should have listened to them, uh, and they should have told me what to do. This is a hint. Of no, no, no. This is another movie called. <laughs> called. <laughs> anyway. So, I have fur, 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 on Blu-ray. You've got a couple of fur, fur, fur. Yeah, yeah, we'll talk. So, anyway. Uh, and, and so I came out of that experience bruised and broken, and I said, well, I'm going to do it again. And that was another uh, film that I did with, with Charlie, which was lighter, and it was Men at Work, and it was silly. And, and, and my mother pulled me aside, and she's, she's sort of been, she's the rock of the family, and she's the most practical one of, in, in our group. And she just said, you know, you're making movies about things you don't know anything about. Make films about what you know. And what do you know? You know about family, you know about people. And so my focus changed. I make folk movies. I believe I make folk movies, and, and it started with, you know, I did this deal with the devil. I, I agreed to do a third Mighty Ducks uh, film, which, uh, with, for Disney, in exchange for uh, the funding to do a, a pet project of mine. It was a, a, a movie called The War at Home, where I played a, a directed it and played a, a, a character who was suffering from PTSD, Vietnam veteran. And so... I do Mighty Ducks, and I uh, go off to Texas, and I make War at Home, and Kathy Bates is in it, and, and my father plays my father, Kimberly Williams. It's a four-hander, and it's based on James Duff's play, uh, Homefront, which uh, Carol O'Connor originated the role that, that my father played. So I thought, you know, this is, I got this in hand. This is four people in a house. Uh, this is something I know. It's about a dysfunctional family. I know a lot about that. So <laughs> most of us do. So... Um, the movie was released on four screens and, uh, and sort of disappeared. And outside of the festival circuit, not many people ever heard of it. But, but that experience sort of informed moving where I was going to go. And it was to make movies that, that mattered. I didn't care what the cost was uh, uh, emotionally to me. I knew that it was the road that I was going to take was going to be very difficult. Um, but I wanted to make films. I wanted to change the direction of my career. And did you decide? Uh, there's a lot on this reel that I'm not proud of. Well, I mean, there's some fun. Yeah, I had Where do you good... see my reel? <laughs> um, but, but, but at that point, when you say uh, uh, you make this decision, is is coupled with that decision, uh, uh, you know, side by side with it, with that decision? Do you think? And I'm willing to stop. Not deciding, but you're willing to stop starring in films as an actor, films you don't want to make anymore. Sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, and and you have to say this is a sacrifice I'm willing to make. Yeah. I want to. I want, literally want to make a right hand turn. And, uh, and, and I think, you know, much to the dismay of agents and managers who were making a lot of money off of some of the poor decisions that I was making, um, they were, you know, uh, they were not necessarily as uh, supportive as you would have imagined. Right. I love when you do a movie and, um, you know, I, w I would make some decisions like I think, yeah, I want to take my wife on a vacation to Rome. 
And so they, this, all, this is all uh, appended to someone saying, come to Rome and make this movie. And it was a really bad, it was such a bad movie, you know. And, but of course, it all sounds better when the person on the other end of the phone is Italian, you know. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're like, you come and the, the, the movie is a video game, but the movie. And uh, <laughs> you are the game master, you're like a floating head in the screen. And you were talking to all the people trapped in the maze. <laughs> and you say to them, you know, you have served me well. Proceed to level five, you know. <laughs> and you are the game master. And I'm like, I'm like, that doesn't sound that bad. <laughs> I'll take my wife to Rome for two weeks. I'm like, yeah, we'll do that. And then afterward, you're like, oh, God. What have you're I like done? sobbing. What have yeah, I done? Yeah, what have I done? Yeah. And it lives forever. It lives yeah. forever. And especially at night when you're really, oh. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Sir, what's going on? Nobody's leaving. Patrons are staging an action. What are they protesting? Freezing to death. What's it going to be, Mr. Goodson? Either one of us or you're one of them, right? That's a clip from The Public, Emilio Estevez's latest film starring Taylor Schilling, Michael K. Williams, and Emilio himself, among many others. When we come back, Emilio Estevez talks a bit about his dad's arrest record, the role of libraries in America, and what I was doing in his dreams. Hi, I'm Alec Baldwin. Don't you think it's cool to care? Carrie Yuma knows fast fashion's not sustainable and decided to spin that conscious mindset to create high-quality, low-impact sneakers. Their best-selling Akka style is the perfect, durable sneaker for dressing up or down, pairing a fresh look with broken-in level comfort. Akka is made with organic cotton canvas and ethically sourced rubber, and every pair comes with Karayuma's signature cork and Mamona oil insoles. Akka's already found its way into my summer shoe rotation. Find your pair and choose from a range of bold and beautiful colors. Right now, there's 15% off at C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash Alec. With how much we rely on our devices, it's easy to forget about the hardware we're born with. Take ears. Like fingerprints, your ears are totally unique. Too bad your earbuds aren't. Unless you've got Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Custom Fit Earbuds. Ultimate Ears Fits offer premium sound and all-day comfort. Their groundbreaking lifeform technology guarantees a perfect fit in only 60 seconds. Just put in the earbuds, connect to the app, and watch as the purple LEDs form the earbuds to your unique shape. With 8 hours of continuous playback on a single charge and up to 20 hours with the charging case, Ultimate Ears Fits are the perfect choice for listening to your favorite music and podcast all day long without pain or discomfort. For a limited time, get 15% off above the current offer of your pair of Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Earbuds at ue.com slash fits. Just use promo code FITS at checkout. That's 15% off the current offer with promo code FITS at ue.com slash Bits. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. The activism at the core of Emilio Estevez's new movie is rooted in the Sheen family's long history of political engagement. 
The public is a celebration of uh, nonviolent civil disobedience. Uh, I grew up in a household where that was celebrated. Uh, you know, my father's been arrested 68 times for uh, all, all uh, civil disobedience, uh, uh, peaceful, going against uh, uh, nuclear proliferation, immigration, and, um, and um, homelessness. So thank God we've solved all three of those problems. I love that you know the exact number. I see the Estevez household, the Sheen household, and he comes out of jail, and everyone's there with a cake with a number on it. Congratulations, Dad. Number 68. We're proud of you. It's like jail, but there's bars on the cake or handcuffs. In, in the late 80s and the 90s, he would regularly, uh, it would end up on the evening news, sometimes the national news, and he would be carted off to jail and in cuffs, and, and he'd be screaming at the top of his lungs either the Lord's Prayer or the Tagore poem, Let My Country Awake. And he looked like a lunatic. And, and, and I would say, and my, and my mother would just be shaking her head and, and you know, and, and I didn't really understand. I understood it fundamentally. I understood what he was doing, but I didn't understand it spiritually. I didn't get it, um, but I do now. I understand that we have to stand up and we have to embrace what Reinhold Niebuhr called the sublime madness. And, and that is, you, you know you're going to lose, but you, but you cannot not do it. Um, it's, uh, it's the, it's the Jean-Paul Sartre quote, uh, I, I don't fight fascists because I think I will win, I fight fascists because they're fascists. But I'm not, you know, I, again, that, that was at the core of who my father is. And I think that that has informed to circle back around the, the kinds of films that, that I'm interested in making. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, in, in emotional and spiritual transformation. I, as I said, I, I'm interested in movies about people. I don't know how to move, make a movie in outer space. I've, I've never been there, right? And, and it doesn't particularly interest me. We've got a lot to solve on this planet, so let's focus on what's going on. It's funny, on when you said that your mother said, do movies you know, and I thought, you know, I thought your response would have been something like, you know, well, Kubrick didn't go to outer space, Mom. No, you know? and, and Copeland never went to Vietnam. Right. I'm sure you could make an argument for all of right. them. Um, That's not your filmmaking. You want to do what you know. Yeah, and, and I also have to work within the parameters of the, of the budget some. We're going to get to that. But you get to a movie like Bobby, mm -hmm. that looks like it's a lot of money for an it independent wasn't. film. No, it wasn't. We started, that, that budget started at around 5.5. Five. Yeah. Uh, and it had an enormous cast. Yeah, it's and, a big and movie. And again, and that was sort of one of the challenges, as it was with the public, and less, less, uh, to a lesser degree, but um, balancing everybody's schedules. So on Bobby, as on this, we, we, you've got Sharon Stone for five days, you've got Demi Moore for six. They're supposed to be in the same, a couple of the same scenes, but they're scheduled on different, during different weeks. How do we figure this out? You've got Bill Macy, you've got Tony Hopkins, you've got Elijah Wood, you've got Lindsay Lohan who won't come out of her trailer. You've got, and so you're, you're doing this whole this juggling thing, and you're on a very tight budget. So it's like you're watching the sun go down, the hours tick away, and it's like, how are we going to make this impossible schedule? And, and so that is the challenge when you don't have a lot of money and you don't have a lot of time to make it look flawless, to make it look um, like seamless and make it look like a movie and make it look like everybody was there at the same time, yeah. which I think we accomplished and we did it again here on The Public. But I just, I watch myself sort of age, right? <laughs> and, and not slowly, I just watch myself get more and more tired. And, and if you're shooting out of sequence, of course, and you need to be tired at the end of the movie, like we are, like I am in the public, it's, it creates a bit of a problem. With each movie you make, do you, do you uh, come out of the movie 
I mean, I like movies because when you come out of the movie, you, you've learned so much. Sure. Is that the same way it is for you directing? It is, and I, and I think as a director, and if you've also written the screenplay, you have to uh, be accountable to every character. And so when an actor comes the night before shooting, it's like, who is this guy, and what's he doing, and you know, how, how did he get here, and what's his relationship to so-and-so? You've got to write backgrounds for a lot of these uh, characters. And so um, that's just a whole other layer of work uh, and again, I've had a lot of years, to, in particular on the public, I've been working on this film for almost 12 years. Uh, it's a fifth of my life uh, I've devoted to this. So I had a lot of time to think about it. And you know, the, the, are there films you write or, or you develop with other writers, are there films that you have like pots on the stove that you, that you find that you chuck them and you're, you say, I'm not going to make that? No. You don't? No. You've never had that experience? No. And we I, there, would imagine that would be very painful. I, I did write a sequel to The Way, uh, that um, I tried to convince my father to do. And but you couldn't says, afford him. I couldn't afford him. And he says, I, I'm not going there. And I'm not, you know, I'm, not, I'm too old to walk again. And I said, well, you'll be on trains. And no. So, yeah, that was, uh, that's probably the only one so far that had to get chucked. Right. Yeah. Uh, the public, nearly everything that's plaguing this country right now is, is touched upon in this film in terms of uh, community, in terms of education, in terms of poverty and homelessness, in terms of identity, spirituality, what have you. There's so much that, that I think is what's really, really wrong with our country today uh, beyond what you see on the surface and what's covered by the news that's, that's touched upon in this film. Mm. And, and I, w I was wondering, when you write a screenplay like this, do you write a 180-page screenplay, yeah. 100, and then you whittle yeah. it down, whittle yeah, it down? Describe that. Well, I wrote this... Coming off of Bobby, I was feeling, and again, the movie is what it is, and, but there was a lot of attention around, uh, around the film, and we were nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Picture, and we got the SAG nomination. And so there was a lot of energy about what I would be doing next. So the, the first draft of the public was 155 pages. And I said, I'm not changing a word. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, you know, we ended up with 155. Eight or 109 page uh, final draft, but it was as inflated as as uh, as I could possibly get it because I thought there's so many other stories I want to tell, there's so many other characters I want to uh, I want to uh, explore, and so I just kind of had this enormous canvas. The story was initially informed by a um, by a piece in the LA Times written by a former librarian, Chip Ward, who was retiring, and the the the, the thesis of the essay was that. Libraries have become de facto homeless shelters. Librarians have become de facto social workers. And I can't sustain this any longer. And this is an epidemic. And so I was so moved by the piece that I began to do the research and began to write, be, began to write the script. Is there ever a thought uh, for you that you're not going to play these roles in the films and you're going to cast somebody? Or do you always say to yourself, I got this. You're going to play that part. You're looking for the job? Yeah. yeah. No, 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 no. I'm just saying... <laughs> Because no, you, know, you, you, know, I, you know I want to work with you again. Yeah. Oh, no, I know. Yeah, 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 you, like, you all heard it now. <laughs> as good as ink on a page now, buddy. I'm looking. I'm looking. I'm no, right. You know what I'm I mean? Is, is it, I directed one movie. It was, I hated every minute of it. I, I did, it was not my thing. I didn't have the patience mm -hmm. for it. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I, I just <laughs> didn't, didn't you say I, you forgot to cover yourself? You know, you'd covered everybody else. We go, we go into the they, editing room, and I turn to the, my, my assistant director, the director's assistant, and I go, we have a super tight close-up in that shot. She went, she'd look at the page, she'd go, no, we don't. And I was like, what? And my, I, I, the, person who, the person whose performance was the most neglected was my own, and I played the lead in the movie. But, uh, but, but what was interesting was is that I realized that it is tough. I mean, what a muscle you have to have 
to star in and to direct the film. You really, really have to have a special gift. And, and I'm wondering, has it ever been problematic for you? Do you ever think to yourself that you, you know, there's a lot of great, you know, Ronnie Howard is a great director who had a huge sure. career as a TV star, and you never see him in his movies. You sure. ever want to go back to directing only? Sure. I, I mean, I think it would depend on the story. And right. I think if it, if it just didn't make sense for me to be in it, absolutely, I would step back. And, you know, in the way I had a very small role, and Bobby had a very limited role. Uh, so it was. Uh, I, I think sure. I, I, I'm open to that. So the last question I'll ask before we go out into the house here is that you'd make uh, studio films and big films in your lifetime. Mm. You go in and you shoot and you're an actor and you, you go on and in the time that they're finishing that movie, right. you've shot two or three more movies in that right. time, you know? That's right. And now you are, uh, you, you are prepping the movie and you are shooting right. the movie and you're posting the movie and you have to raise money for the movie and, right. gotta, and then you've got to sell the movie and market the movie. Take us through that process. Just give us a little bit of the well, I left, the, this um, film. I left uh, Los Angeles for Cincinnati where we shot the film in, right after the election. Uh, it was, uh, I drove out from, uh, from Los Angeles. I started the prep, and that was November of 2016. Uh, so when you commit to making a film, especially an independent film, you know you're in it a minimum of two years. Uh, the editing process can be, again, a very long period. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of test screenings, um, which, you know, of, of course, every studio wants to do, and I'm all for it. I think that the only way Why? to know... I, I think that the only way to know how your film is playing is to, is to take it for a test drive. See how it's... Does that cost see how money, it's too? It, it, it's about 10 grand uh, to, to, run, to run these, what, what are called NRG, National Research Group, test screenings. And you have to fill an auditorium, three, 400 people, and, and the price goes up depending of, of how big that auditorium is, that theater is. So, so these, these items just start racking up. And, uh, you know, we were fortunate enough to have an Ohio tax credit, which came at a, at a terrific time in, in the process. So it gave us an influx of cash, uh, and we were able to, get, uh, to, to continue working on the film. But again, because, as you mentioned, this movie deals with so much. Uh, it, is a, it is a big, giant, a, adult portion. Uh, I wanted to make sure that we got it right. Um, I took the film down to the ALA conference down in, in uh, New Orleans uh, and screened for thousands of, of, of crazy librarians. And, uh, and, and, they, and they went wild for the film. Uh, but again, that's a, that's a process, getting it there, three screenings in the middle of a big conference. You commit to doing all of that. You commit to uh, a, an extended period of time where you're going to think about nothing other than this film. So, you know, next month it'll be two years where I have been living, breathing, and, 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 and dreaming about this movie. In fact, you popped up in my dream recently. Um, <laughs> And, and it, was, it was odd. Was I winning an Oscar in your dream? You, you, yep. you might have been, yeah. You, uh, yeah, you might have been. <laughs> no, it was a lot darker. You had framed right. me for some crime. You'd framed me for some... And, and it was so obvious that I hadn't done the crime, I hadn't committed this murder, but, and it was you. You were the villain. Yeah, I don't, it was odd, and and, and yet Let's and make yet, a movie out of that. And yet, and yet, you were standing there when the police arrived, and I was trying to convince him. I said, "Please, Alec Baldwin killed him, not me." And and, and you're saying I killed somebody? Yeah, oh no, you killed oh, somebody. I killed and somebody. I was, but I was the one covered in blood. And uh, it was a very bizarre dream. I meant to tell you about this. Who last was the month. person I killed? I, I'm not sure, but you framed it on me. Were we anywhere near the Supreme Court? At the time? <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> no. What I mean is. I'm just saying that, you know. Okay. Let's take some questions. I can't see back there. Who's got their hand up? 
On, right on the oh, aisle right there, gosh. sir. I was just wondering if you thought there would ever be a world without libraries. Would they ever become obsolete? Could you ever imagine that? Do you think they still will continue to be relevant in the future? Well, are you aware of this um, piece that Forbes uh, posted online uh, about, I don't know, about six weeks ago, talking about now that, uh, now that we have Google and Amazon, the libraries are obsolete, uh, librarians around the world uh, shouted this piece right offline. Uh, Forbes was forced to take it down. So I, I don't envision a, a world where, uh, where, where we don't have libraries. I think that uh, uh, Tony Marks, who's the president of the New York uh, Public Library System, he was quoted just yesterday in an article where he said, uh, libraries are quietly the place where democracy can be saved. And I also just wanted to mention that it's Halloween, and every Halloween I like to break out nightmares and, and watch that piece that you did where you get sucked into the video machine. Oh, gosh, yeah. That was one of those ones on the resume that we talked about earlier. Excuse me. Is there a movie that you haven't done yet that you're looking forward to doing that you could share with this small group? It's, My, my next film with Alec. Oh, hey. Yeah. <laughs> And, what is no, that I, I, and what's actually, the title I've, of that going to be? I, I've, I've, there's, a, there's a script that I've been working on for a while about immigration, and unfortunately it's not a timely issue. So I've had to put that on the back burner. So, no, I wrote a comedy about immigration, about rediscovering America through the eyes of an immigrant. And so that's, um, that's slowly coming into the front burner. Now, are you going to play the lead in that movie too, or are you going to get out of the way? <laughs> is a Latina, so I'm, I'm probably outside my, my range. Right? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. Over here. Uh, just going back a ways, what was it like on the set of The Breakfast Club, and how did the cast get along? On The Breakfast Club, we, everybody got along really well. Um, you know, I was, I, I was 21 at the time. I was you know, a few years out of, out of high school. Uh, they, they, they put Judd and, um, and Allie and I uh, back into a high school. We, we started attending classes uh, just to sort of get that high school vibe. And, and again, we could, we could be in a school and, and be anonymous. Uh, Anthony, uh, Michael Hall, and, and Molly were still teenagers and still, uh, you know, still had, uh, uh, still, I think we're still going to school at the time. So, uh, but yeah, we got along, we got along very well. Um, uh, I don't really attend any of the, um, the Breakfast Club reunions and I've been criticized for that. Um, and 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 but my my castmates are you know they're they're they've been uh, very vocal and and sort of wondering why I never show up. But I don't. I, how do you feel about doing retrospectives and doing the doing the? Because um, well, I, I, I just don't that, do them. To I be honest know. with you, I think that it depends on the nature of the film. You know, like these people talk about how much the movie means to them at That's that right. point in their life. And I hear people all the time talk about Breakfast Club helped me get through high school. You know, so with that in mind, I think what could possibly be wrong about going to the retrospective? You know, I mean, really, it has great meaning to them. And even though you don't share that, it's a job you did and you play a character. I'll let people come up to me and say, oh, I love this or I love that. And I'll sit there and go, oh, well, thank you. And, uh, you know, best of luck to you or whatever. But for you, if they have these retrospectives, I'm like... My God, let's go. I'll go with you. Let's go. Let's hang out. <laughs> I want to attend the Breakfast Club reunion. That sounds like a blast. Thank you for being here. Thank you us. so much. That was Emilio Estevez. The Public is his latest movie, and it's currently on the festival circuit. I'll let you know when it's out in wide release. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. 
At CVS Health Hub, you can see a provider, fill a prescription, and grab what you need all in one trip, even on evenings and weekends. That's healthier made easier. Visit a CVS Health Hub today. Services vary by location. See cvs.com slash health hub for details. From the Dan Patrick Podcast Network, iHeartRadio, Joy Road Entertainment, Workhouse Media, and Sugar 23 comes a new podcast, Westward. Hi, I'm Jerry West, longtime basketball player, longtime executive, very proud of my association with the Los Angeles Lakers for numerous years. And now I'm with the Los Angeles Clippers working for Steve Ballmer, who hopes to change the landscape of basketball in Los Angeles. This is the story of basketball in L.A. and a rivalry 35 years in the making. This is not about the Clippers unrooting the Lakers from their pedestal. That will never happen. But for seven straight years, the Clippers had the best team in Los Angeles. Listen to Westward on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.